All right, take a Bible, find Matthew chapter 26. And as you find Matthew 26, let me make a couple of confessions to you. Confession number one, when we started this series for 2022, and we said we're going to take each Sunday and we're going to pick a passage from what people have read the previous week, and on Wednesdays we're going to pick a passage from that Wednesday night, uh, Jason with the college kids and Jake with the youth said, hey, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to track through and preach the same sort of window of passages. So to make sure that we were all on the same page and someone didn't preach a Wednesday night sermon that was already planned for Sunday, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to look ahead and I'm going to plan ahead on Sundays several months out and I'm going to pick the passages that I want to do on Sunday morning. And so I did that and I gave the guys a schedule, gave them a calendar, and what I gave them had mistakes in it. And so, this is hard to believe that I would make a mistake, but I did. So it had mistakes in it, and so they started picking passages and planning and studying, and then I caught the mistake, and I fixed it, and I gave them a new schedule, and they said, but now we have picked passages that don't fit the new schedule, and we really want to do these passages. And I've been giving them grief for weeks you can't read the schedule, you can't preach the right window, everyone's going to be confused. Totally my fault, but I've been blaming them for all of it. So two weeks ago, the weather was not like it is today. It's a beautiful day today. It was miserable a couple of weeks ago. We canceled Wednesday night church, and this was the passage that I was going to preach on that last Wednesday night when we canceled. And my initial thought was when we canceled the guys asked me, what are you going to do? Are you going to save that and go back to it? Or are you just going to move on? And I said, we're going to move on. We've got to stay on the schedule. We've got to go. We, we're in Mark. Matthew is in the rearview mirror. And then I thought about it, and I thought, I really don't want to skip this passage. And I looked ahead at the corrected schedule and the way we've got Wednesday nights and different things. It just isn't going to really fall for me to pick this up as we go through Mark or to pick it up as we go through Luke. And so... I'm breaking my own rules, and we're going to look tonight at Matthew 26. So if you're reading through the reading plan and you're on track, you just have to think back a couple of weeks. If you're a lazy slacker and you're behind on the reading plan, this might be where you're at as you go through the New Testament. So it might work out well for some of you. Matthew 26, we're at the very end of Jesus' life. And what I want to do as we lead into this passage... The verses that we're going to look at are Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Jesus praying in Gethsemane. <clears throat> what I want to do is get Jesus from the upper room to Gethsemane. And I just want you to have a sense of how all of those things sort of unfolded on this last night. So in Matthew 26, verse 17 to 29... We read about Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples in Jerusalem. And because we are not old covenant Jews, I don't think we have really a great sense of how big a deal the Passover was to these Jewish people. How big the Passover celebration was, how entrenched it was in Jewish culture. And this was a unique Passover celebration with Jesus and his disciples because they gathered together to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus changed all of it. It would be like you get together with your family for Thanksgiving or for Christmas or for Fourth of July, 
and grandma or grandpa or the patriarch or the matriarch sort of speaks up and says, hey, I know we always celebrate this, but here we are together and instead I want to celebrate this. And you would say, you can't just change a holiday like the 4th of July or Thanksgiving or Christmas, but that's exactly what Jesus does on this night as they celebrate the Passover. He reinterprets the whole thing And in a very egotistical move, Jesus gets to be egotistical, you and I don't, he puts himself at the center of the celebration. He says, it's really not about Egypt, it's really not about Pharaoh, it's really not about lambs, it's really not about the Exodus, it's really about me. And I know that there was this covenant between God and his people, but now, rather than celebrating the Passover, You're going to celebrate me, and rather than thinking about the old covenant, you're going to think about the new covenant. So this is a big deal at this dinner. So they eat the dinner. After they eat the Passover meal and they sang a hymn, Jesus and his disciples walked out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, to the Mount of Olives. That's Matthew 26, 20 to 25. So if you want to have a, a visual, I'm a visual person, I like to kind of be able to think about what's happening. We just put a picture up on the screen. This is a picture taken from the eastern side of Jerusalem, probably somewhere close to the Temple Mount area on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And it's looking east across the Kidron Valley over towards the Mount of Olives. The, the scope of this is a little bit off because the picture is zoomed in from where it's actually taken. And so the total distance between the edge of the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and that Mount of Olives, if you were to walk it, is really about a mile. It doesn't look like a mile in that photo, but it's about a mile distance between the two. Now you understand that in Matthew 26, there were no tour buses driving by. There was no buildings out on the side of the hill. It looked very, very different, but you can sort of get a sense of where they're leaving Jerusalem and they're moving east out in this direction. In this picture, I'll put a little red circle up on the screen. This is a church, and right behind that church with the red circle is an area known as Gethsemane. Now, we often use the phrase, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's not exactly a biblical phrase. Sometimes the Gospels talk about Gethsemane, and sometimes they talk about a garden. But this area of Gethsemane was actually a series of gardens. So it might be better to say these are the gardens of Gethsemane. And that's sort of what it looks like today. If you go back behind uh, that church that we circled, that's sort of what it looks like. You get an idea. There were olive trees back in this area. There were other things potentially grown. Gethsemane literally means oil press. And so probably people in this area, on this hill, they're growing olive trees and they don't want to haul the olives all around the world to press them. So someone comes up with the great idea of let's put a press here. And that way we can press these olives and make oil right here uh, in this garden area. So this is where Jesus likely knows someone who owns one of these gardens and he made a habit when he was in Jerusalem, of taking the disciples out in this area to pray, and that's exactly what he does in this story. So now we have Jesus out to Gethsemane. We've celebrated the Passover, sang a hymn, prayed. We'll circle back to that prayer in John 17. At the end of our time together, they walk across the Kidron Valley out of the city into the gardens 
of Gethsemane. Now, before we jump in and look at this passage, let me share one quote with you from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Uh, He was a literal, global, worldwide celebrity uh, a long, long time ago when he was a preacher. He was the pastor of the world's first megachurch. People remember him today uh, as the Prince of Preachers. And this is what Spurgeon says about the verses that we're about to read in Matthew 26. He says, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and was not consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. Is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. And I'm going to preach about it. And the prince of preachers, the greatest preacher who has ever preached in the English language says, put the quote up one more time for me. He says, no man can rightly expound such a passage as this. So it's going to be a little bit different tonight. Almost always I give you a big idea of whatever text that we're looking at that we're talking about. I'm not going to give you a big idea tonight because this is a mysterious passage in a lot of ways. This is a kind of passage that every time you try to make a run at it, if you're not careful, you'll end up a heretic real quick. Real quick. It is the kind of passage, Spurgeon's on to something here, that it's just not really easy to boil it down to one simple, nice, neat, packaged sentence. It really is more the kind of passage that you ought to read and just slow down and linger over and think on and ponder on and reflect on and meditate on. And so that's essentially what we're going to try to do tonight. We're going to read the passage. I'm going to say a few quick things about prayer. It's not the main part of this passage, but it is an important part of this passage. A few things about prayer. And then we're going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to ask some questions. We're going to try to answer them, not by being creative, not by being speculative, but by listening to what the Bible says in other places. We're going to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So open your Bible, if you have not yet, Matthew 26. I'm going to read, starting in verse 36 and going down to 46. The Word of God says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, 
could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Father, we've sung about uh, the cross. We've sung about the, the salvation that you provided for your people at Calvary. Um, we've sung about the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection. We've acknowledged that you deserve all the glory and all the praise for what you have done for us, undeserving sinful people. And we come to this passage and we just marvel at the Lord Jesus Christ, at the things that he was feeling and the things that he was praying. And uh, the entire episode is, is a wondrous thing. And we pray tonight that you would give us eyes to see the truth. And we pray that you would deepen our love for the Lord Jesus tonight. We pray in his name. Amen. So the focus of this passage is Jesus. So the focus of what we're going to spend most of our time talking about is Jesus. But Jesus is praying in this passage. And I want to note just a few quick lessons about prayer. These aren't exactly going to be rapid fire, but we're going to go through these pretty quick so that we can think about Jesus in this, in this story. So five quick lessons on prayer. First lesson is this. Prayer requires great discipline. Great discipline. If you are going to be a praying person, you must be a disciplined person. If you're an undisciplined person, if you're a lazy person, you will never be a praying person. True prayer is a spiritual discipline. It is hard and it requires great effort. And we're reminded of that here when Peter and the disciples keep falling asleep. And it's one of those stories in the gospel that it's easy to just sort of shake your finger at Peter and act like you've never done that. Act like you've never daydreamed on a Wednesday night when the pastor gives you three minutes to pray. Act like I've never daydreamed as the pastor standing in the front of the room asking us to pray for three minutes. I know it and you know it and it's worth just saying out loud prayer is not easy. It's hard and it requires great, great discipline. It's not something that's just going to happen in your life if you're not intentional about it and disciplined in it. Number two, we should pray when we suffer. We're going to talk about the suffering of Jesus tonight. Jesus knew what was coming. He was not caught off guard by anything that happened as these hours unfolded. He knew that suffering was coming, and his response was to pray. It was intense prayer. It was persistent 
prayer. It was bold prayer. You note that it takes us about 10 seconds to read what he prayed and that Matthew gives us the detail that he came back and he said in verse 40, could you not watch with me one hour? So when it says what he prayed in verse 39, you understand that's a summary. It's not the only thing that he said. It's not like he went away and he prayed for 10 seconds and he came back and Peter was immediately asleep. It was a long prayer. It takes discipline, it takes focus, it takes work. And it's something that Jesus wanted to do. It's something he needed to do as he approached suffering. You're going to suffer in life. Some of you know that all too well right now. Some of you are going through a great stretch of life where suffering has not been very real to you. But you know, if you're honest, that it could come out of nowhere. A phone call a diagnosis, it could be anything. When you suffer, you ought to pray. Thirdly, prayer helps us resist temptation. Verse 40, Jesus said, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you don't enter Temptation. Watching and praying, being vigilant and disciplined in prayer, Peter, John, James, the disciples, that will keep you from the dangers of temptation. If you are struggling with temptation, you ought to start praying. If you're not struggling with temptation, you ought to open your eyes. You ought to wake up. You ought to realize I am struggling with temptation. We all struggle with temptation. You gotta pray. Fourthly, pray in submission to God's will. Pray in submission to God's will. We're gonna say more about what Jesus is actually praying here. I just wanna note that a lot of times when we tell this story off the cuff, we change the prayer that Jesus actually prayed. We don't say it exactly like Jesus said it. We sort of paraphrase it and we try to put it in our own words. And I think you gotta be really, really cautious about doing that. I think you ought to just say, this is what Jesus prayed. What he actually prayed is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then again in verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In your prayer life, you can ask God anything you want. Anything. But you've got to approach prayer submitting to his will. Now listen, you can say the words, not my will and your will be done, and it just be an empty thing. So I'm not telling you you've got to say the phrase every time you pray. It's not a magical formula. But your heart when you come before God and you bring your requests and your anxieties and your petitions to him, has got to be submissive to his will. Lastly, number five, true prayer is satisfied with God's answer. We're going to talk about whether or not God answered this prayer. Did God answer, God the Father, answer this prayer from God the Son? The immediate answer was no. It's not possible for the cup to pass the answer was no sometimes when you pray the answer will be no 
Sometimes there will not be much of an answer, which is sort of a way of God saying, just keep praying. Just hold tight. Be a person of faith. Sometimes God will say yes as the answer to prayer, but true prayer is satisfied with God's answer. Prayer is not most basically about you getting something from God. Prayer most basically is about you experiencing a relationship with God. And if your mindset about prayer is, I'm doing this, I'm having this conversation so that I can get something from him, you've got it all flipped upside down. Prayer is the experience of you having in real time, in real life, a relationship with the creator of the universe, having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that's the focus of your praying, not getting something from God, but getting God, then you're satisfied with whatever the answer is because you get God in prayer. You get to talk to him. You get to relate to him. You get to commune with him. Regardless of what the answer is, you get him. So it requires discipline. We pray when we suffer. Helps you resist temptation. We pray in submission to God's will. And prayer is satisfied with God's answer. Now, let's pivot and think about the story. This is not a complicated story. It's a very simple story. They leave Jerusalem. They walk out to this garden. They get there. It's dark. It's night. Jesus says, I need you to watch. I need you to pray. He goes a little bit further. And he prays, apparently for about an hour. He goes back. Wakes him up. I need you to pray. He goes and he prays a second time. He comes back and he wakes him up. He goes and prays a third time. And then he says, it's time. The time has come. The hour has come. My betrayer is at hand. That's the story. It's not a complicated story to figure out what's happening. But it is a complicated story. And if you're a thinking person and you read this story, you ought to have a few questions that sort of bubble up in your mind as you listen to Jesus pray. Here's the first question. How does Jesus fear? That's my word, okay? Fear is my word. How does Jesus fear make sense in light of the courage of other men who are facing death? How do you make sense of that? Let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. Have you heard the name Socrates? Take a philosophy class in college or... When you were in high school, you probably learned about Socrates. If you've seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, they go back. Socrates is one of the guys they bring back. Okay? Lived in ancient Greece. He was a teacher. He was a philosopher. He was also condemned to die. And the charge against him was corrupting the young minds of Athens. They didn't like what he was teaching. So they sentenced him to die. They said, you've got to drink this poison, hemlock. And he drank it, and he slammed it down on the table, and he started cracking jokes and being goofy and being defiant right up to the moment that the poison killed him. Didn't phase him a bit. Give you another example. Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer. If you work in this church, at some point you're going to get a nickname. You don't get to pick your nickname. So far, we have not seen fit to name anybody the hammer. That's a great nickname. You got to do something pretty cool to be nicknamed the hammer. 
Judas the Hammer. What did he do to get that nickname? He led a group of Jews, his family and some others, in rebellion against an occupying force in Judah, Judea, Galilee, and Israel. This is between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So you're not going to read about this guy in the Old Testament. He's long gone by the time the New Testament rolls around. He's in that middle 400-year period. There was an invading force. He said, I'm tired of it. He rallied the troops. They ran them off. Great underdogs ran off the big dogs, took back control of their homeland, and they said, this guy, we're going to call him the hammer. Now, eventually, the big dogs came back, and they brought a big army, and they captured Judas, and they captured a bunch of his family members, and they captured a bunch of Jewish people, and they started executing them one by one. And the historical account of Judas and his family and his friends who were executed one by one says that they were defiant up to the moment of death and that they were praising God right up to the very moment of their death. They were not scared one bit. Courageous in the face of death. One more example. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Englishmen. They lived in the 1500s. In the year 1555, they were condemned to be burned at the stake. Do you know what their crime was? They were Protestants. All they had to do was say, I'm not a Protestant. I'll be a Catholic. They refused. You can see this painting. They're sort of gathered up and they're building the wood around these two guys. Here's what Latimer, Hugh Latimer, said to Nicholas Ridley while they were being taken to the stake and they were building this bonfire around them. This is a quote. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. Be a man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They're going to burn us. Be a man about it. God's going to use this for his glory. They went to their death courageously. And then you read Matthew 26, and you read about Jesus who seems to be very much afraid of what's coming. Now, I told you that's my word. I've put that word into the discussion. The words that you'll find in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. Here's the words you'll find in the Bible. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. He's distressed, he's in agony, and Luke tells us, Dr. Luke tells us that he was sweating drops of blood. The medical condition is hematidrosis. Capillaries burst when you're under great stress and incredible anxiety. It's very rare, but it happens, and it happened to Jesus in this moment. Sorrowful, troubled, distressed, agony, sweating blood. So you got this comparison Socrates, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Judas the Hammer, courageous to the last minute. And we read about Jesus who's sweating drops of blood. And if you had been there not sleeping with the disciples and you were just watching from a distance, if we could time travel you back. You were watching it with your own eyes. What you would say is, that guy's having a nervous breakdown. That guy's having a panic attack. 
This guy looks terrified. What in the world is going on? Here's the answer. Jesus knew that he was about to carry iniquity. He was about to be made sin. And he was about to bear the curse. Notice you didn't fill in a blank about nails. You didn't fill in a blank about a crown of thorns. You didn't fill in a blank about being scourged or whipped or beaten or humiliated. Those are all bad things. Jesus wasn't, I imagine, excited about any of them. It's not the reason that he's praying like this in the garden. The reason he's praying like this in the garden is that he's about to carry iniquity. This is Isaiah 53. We'll put it on the screen. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You understand that Jesus had read Isaiah 53. Probably had it memorized. He knew it was about him. And he knew... That Almighty God was going to take iniquity, that's a Bible word describing sin that talks about how we twist things and we perverse things that start off good. He's going to take our iniquity and place it on the suffering servant. This is what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when Paul says this, for our sake... He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not know sin. He never sinned. And he knew that he was about to be made sin. Think about your sin. Your most shameful sin. Your most embarrassing sin your most horrific sin, all of it, ours, is going to be placed on the Son. Galatians 3.13, what would happen in that moment? Christ would redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He knew that he was about to be cursed for his people. He's not looking forward to beatings. He's not excited about nails. He's not thrilled about being stripped naked and humiliated. It's all going to be bad. Those are not the things that cause him to pray this prayer. It's not what he's praying about. Lesser men have faced horrific deaths with incredible courage. Jesus could face death with courage. But what he knew is that it wasn't just going to be a Roman cross, but it was going to be iniquity and sin, and a curse. All of that adds up to the idea of God's wrath. So here's a second question. How does Jesus' request make sense in the light of his repeated predictions about his own death? And I just want you to think about this. If you have your Bible open, flip back to the left and look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He told them. 
This must happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. This, this has to happen. He knew it had to happen. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. He says it again. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. That's twice. Look at Matthew 20, verse 17. Here's the third one. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now you look at our passage, Matthew 26, verse 39, and Jesus says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's told his disciples three times exactly what was gonna happen. Not just what was gonna happen, but what must happen. And now his prayer is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Sounds like he wants out is a fascinating part of the story if you have read about the life of Jesus up to this point. He has faced raging seas. Didn't faze him a bit. He has faced raging demoniacs, men who could not be bound with chains. He didn't blink. He's faced raging mobs in his own town, hometown of Nazareth and in Jerusalem who have wanted to throw him off the cliff, wanted to stone him, wanted him dead. Didn't bother him in the least. He's told his disciples three times, this must happen, this will happen, and now his prayer is, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Two things to remember. The first thing that you and I need to remember is, and this is not on your notes, Jesus was truly human. He's truly God, but he's truly human. He's the God-man. And sometimes in our imaginations, I think that we might overemphasize his deity in a way that we just sort of say, well, he, he was kind of human. He, he kind of looked human. Well, the Bible says he was truly God and truly human. He got tired. He took naps in boats on cushions. Corey told us all about it. He got hungry and he had to eat. He's human. He felt emotions. That's part of what it means to be human is to feel emotion. We read about some of those emotions here. Sorrow, trouble, distress, agony. He's human, truly human. Secondly, remember this. He had come to bear our sin and to bear God's wrath. Jesus knew that he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He was going to drink the cup. That's what he's praying about. He's not praying about crosses. He's not praying about nails. He's not praying about thorns. He's praying about a cup. If it is possible for the cup to pass, is it possible? Cup is an Old Testament reference. 
I've given you a number of verses. I'm not going to put them on the screen. We're not going to turn to them now, but you can look. Book of Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel. The cup in the Old Testament is an image used to talk about God's wrath being poured out on his enemies. God will say to his enemies in prophetic fashion, you will drink the cup of my wrath. Sort of like an old Folgers commercial, down to the last drop. All of it. Not just a sip, but he says to his enemies, you will drink the cup of my wrath. The book of Revelation talks about this cup in the end. And that's what Jesus is praying about here. He's not praying about physical suffering, but he's praying about the cup. He's praying about the wrath of God that would be poured out. And this is his request. If it be possible, this is his prayer, his question, if it be possible, let this cup pass. And it was not possible. It was not possible. Question number three. How did Jesus' emotions make sense in light of what we read about Jesus in Hebrews 12? How do we square these two things? Jesus' emotions here in Matthew 26 and what we read in Hebrews 12. I'll put Hebrews 12 up on the screen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Somehow you got to take that passage in Hebrews 12 and you got to make it fit with Jesus being sorrowful, troubled, distressed, in agony, sweating drops of blood. you got to make those two things fit. Hebrews says it was for the joy that was set before him. So let's say one thing about joy. This one is not in your notes either. Joy can exist right alongside agony together in the same moment. And joy does not always look like smiles and giggles. Joy is not always a lighthearted thing. Sometimes joy is a very heavy thing. And sometimes, we really don't want to admit this, but it's true, sometimes it is in agony that you can see joy most clearly. In good times, sometimes it's hard to distinguish happiness, ease, pleasure, comfort, and joy. Sometimes they just sort of all get blended together in the good times. And sometimes, in fact, maybe we ought to just say most of the time, it's when we are in agony that you can see joy most clearly. So just because Hebrews 12 talks about joy and Matthew talks about agony, doesn't mean those things are incompatible. Here's the second thing you need to know. The joy that was set before Jesus was the glory that he would receive through the salvation of his people. That's the joy. The joy is not drinking the cup. It's not a joyful experience to drink the cup of God's wrath. The joy is not the crucifixion or the beatings or the carrying his cross outside of town or the giving up of his spirit or the being stabbed. None of that was the joy. 
the joy that was set before Jesus was his glory that he would receive through the salvation of his people. That's what Hebrews 12 is talking about. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised its shame. There's a hint about this in John 17. I think I have it to put on the screen. John 17. This is why Jesus is still in the upper room. Okay? They haven't finished the Passover meal. They haven't left Jerusalem. They haven't crossed the Kidron Valley. They haven't gone out to Gethsemane. They haven't fallen asleep while Jesus is praying. They're still in the upper room. And Jesus is praying. More praying. There's lots of praying on this night. Lots of praying. And this is the first thing that Jesus prays when he's with his disciples. Before they've even gone out, they're still in the upper room. Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. What do we read in Matthew chapter 26? Sleep, take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The time has come. It says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's a lot of glory talk. Like, it's so repetitive. It just when you're reading it, it ought to just be like a hammer beating you over the head. Glory, 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 glory. That's what was on Jesus' mind when he's praying with the disciples in the upper room. His glory. His glory in the salvation of his people. And to that end, he's willing to say to the Father, if the cup can pass, but not my will but your will be done. Did God hear that prayer? Did he answer that prayer? The Bible says that he did hear it, and he did answer it. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 5. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Loud cries and tears, praying to the one who was able to save him from death. If it's possible that this cup pass. What was the answer to that prayer? It's not possible. He was heard because of his reverence. The answer was no, and he was heard. That prayer didn't just echo out amongst the olive trees, but it hit home with the Father. He heard it. He heard the prayer in the upper room when Jesus prayed about his own glory. He heard the prayer in Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, if this cup can pass, let it pass, but not my will be done. Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He was heard. And the answer was no. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross And he despised the shame of it. And he drank the cup. All of it. 
And before he gave up his spirit, no one took his life from him, but he laid his life down. Before he finally laid it down, he said, it's finished. It's paid. It's done. It's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the source of eternal salvation for his people. Let's pray.